presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Arizona's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Common Sense Digest. I am your host, Earl Wright, chairman of the Common Sense Institute, National Board of Directors. We are a nonpartisan research organization employing precise econometric analysis, which we'll talk about today, which bridges the gap between economic development and sound public policy. In a recent groundbreaking report, our team of economists found that Arizona manufacturing sales have skyrocketed to $77.6 billion annually. While previously underrated or overlooked, manufacturing has taken center stage in the 21st century economy helping our nation advance global economic competitiveness, strengthen our national security, further innovation and technological excellence, and an increase in overall self-reliance. The data is clear. Manufacturing matters. And today, I'm very excited to nerd it out with you and all of the above about this imperative sector with my newest special guest, Steve Macias, Common Sense Institute Arizona board member, and the chief executive of Pivot Manufacturing, a premier manufacturing service shop in Greater Phoenix, consisting of a team combined 100 years experience, helping to send an already burgeoning manufacturing industry into overdrive. Steve, it's great to have you on board. But before we get started, Pivot Manufacturing, you have a significant presence in Phoenix. Tell us a little bit about it so we can understand uh, the perspective from which you're coming to talk about manufacturing in Arizona. Uh, well, thanks, Earl. Um, I appreciate the, the invitation to speak with you folks today. Uh, I will tell you that Pivot Manufacturing has been around for about 23 years. We're a contract manufacturer. We're a machine shop. Uh, we work mostly with Department of Defense prime contractors, groups like Raytheon, General Dynamics. We build metal parts that go into uh, a number of products like uh, computer systems, racking systems uh, that go into vehicles, uh, missiles for, for Raytheon, uh, seating systems for BAE. And uh, we have been, like I said, we've been doing this for 23 years. We're located right in central Phoenix and we have uh, 20 something employees. And we, I, I have a Phoenix native. My dad was actually a machinist. Um, and uh, I have been, you know, I've had I've had this stuff in my blood for a long time, and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss manufacturing anytime, anyplace. Well, it's a part of who you are, Steve, and I appreciate everything you've done. But let's talk about Arizona for a second. Manufacturing in Arizona accounts for nine percent of the state GDP and employs sixteen percent of all Arizonans. Can you walk us through this decades-long boom that you've you've uh, experienced within Arizona's manufacturing industry? And uh, what steps did you all take to get where you are today? What's what's driving this sector? Give us the secret formula. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a lot of questions, Errol. Well, let's well, let's you ask for the, what started with the decades long boom. Um, I'll tell you, it has its roots really in the fifties, uh, when a lot of electronic and defense contractors relocated here or built additional facilities. Uh, companies like Motorola, Air Research, Hughes, Goodyear Aerospace. Uh, came here in the aftermath of World War II because Arizona did not have hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, or tidal waves, and air conditioning had become commonplace. So we were able to tame the desert heat, and it seemed like a great place to build redundant facilities 
that a lot of these other natural disaster prone places were they weren't subject to a lot of natural disasters a lot of the other facilities had. So those factors helped lay a nice you know, technical and engineering foundation that made Arizona attractive for several years. And then in 1980, uh, in Chandler, uh, which is a suburb of Phoenix, uh, Intel broke ground. Um, that turned out to be a defining moment uh, in manufacturing for Arizona uh, because as Intel became this 800-pound gorilla that the industry grew up around, you know, sometimes you're good, sometimes you're not. You know, having Intel decide, decide on the Phoenix metro area uh, in 1980 was like, you know, the Chicago Bulls watching Portland draft Sam Bowie and then having Michael Jordan drop onto the lap. Uh, so this really helped to build our industry. Uh, the second wave of manufacturing growth uh, led by the semiconductor industry uh, is now what helped to fuel this third wave that we have seen uh, over the past decade or so, uh, which once again is being led by the tech industry. Between just Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor, they have made commitments and we're, we're seeing these, these fabs being built right now. They're plowing over $70 billion uh, into growth and expansion of their fabs. So additionally, we're also seeing growth in many other areas like autonomous vehicle production. Um, defense production is still very strong. Uh, Raytheon has been experiencing and directing tremendous growth in their Tucson facility, uh, and they've expanded their their campus. Boeing and Northrop Grumman are also building on their footprints here in the Phoenix metro area. Uh, but there's also uh, you know brand new manufacturing coming coming here. Electronics manufacturing is booming. Uh, Benchmark Electronics just recently moved their HQ from Texas to Arizona, and uh, the appliance maker Sub Zero they just broke ground a few weeks ago on a new facility, which is going to bring their footprint to over a million square feet. So, but they did that the last decade or so didn't just happen by by serendipity. During the Great Recession that, that quacked our, our economy about 15 years ago, uh, there were a few states that were hit as hard as Arizona uh, by the collapse of the housing market. Um, fortunately, we had some, some smart corporate leaders who looked around and saw that from a manufacturing perspective, Arizona had some good bones to build on. Um, they'd just been kind of ignored for a few years due to that shiny object that was the, the on-fire housing market. Um, and so in 2011, uh, Governor uh, Jan Brewer established uh, the Arizona Commerce Authority, which was a public-private partnership that actively went to work on selling the merits of Arizona as a place to do business. Uh, in parallel, the governor worked with the state legislature to work on taxes, policy, and regulation changes that would improve the business climate and give the ACA something to sell. And this effort really went into overdrive with the election of, of Doug Ducey as our governor in 2014. Doug or Governor Ducey was one of the most pro-business governors I think the state has ever had. And on top of that, he was a natural sales. Uh, it was very common if the ACA was courting a potential expansion or relocation client for the governor to come along for the close and coincidentally bring along an NFL owner or a Fortune 500 CEO for the sell. The ACA was definitely a catalyst for our recent growth because uh, you can always claim, you know, you're manufacturing friendly until you're blue in the face, but you need to back it up with policy and frankly, good old fashioned selling. You know, you got to go, you got to go sell what you have to make a difference. Well, what were the policies that, that you kind of feel the last few years have contributed is significantly to what you're describing? My gosh, that's amazing. The list of companies you're talking about that are expanding, but what policies uh, specifically uh, helped make this happen? Well, it was a it was a combination, and you know, and I'm a you know I'm a firm believer that you know a rising tide lifts all boats, and and pivot has definitely been a beneficiary of the growth of the manufacturing in Arizona. 
but one of the things that they tried to do is kind of stem stem back the regulation. Uh, there was a, a story, it was a, a, a large paint manufacturer uh, that was in Southern California, and they wanted to expand in their, their facility in Los Angeles, and they could not get the city of Los Angeles to even get somebody out uh, to do a, a survey. Uh, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't talk to anybody. They had made some inroads here in Arizona, in Phoenix, and asked, hey, what would it take? Well, the AC guy, ACA guys were on the next Southwest flight out, uh, talked to them, brought them over here. They decided to open up a facility here because they were able to, uh, through some of the work that Governor Brewer, Governor Ducey had done, really just kind of cut the regulation. You know, not that it was, you know, it was, it was the wild, wild west, but they were able to direct them exactly where they needed to go. What licenses do we need? You know, what do we, you know, what uh, are we going to have to do in order to do business in Arizona? And they led them right through the, the process. It's, it's darkly funny. Um, not if you're California. They said that by the time um, they had broken ground here, they still hadn't heard from the city of L.A. And so it was stuff like that. And but one of the huge catalysts, frankly, was on a federal level. It was the tax reform of 2017 and our uh, ability to quickly depreciate equipment. Um, my business partner, I tend to be cautious by nature, but that ability to depreciate uh, new equipment helped us pull the trigger on some expansion plans, uh, which has paid off nicely as we've, we've really we've doubled our size in the last five years. My goodness. Well, if you have leadership that's going to take a strong hand in making certain that uh, their vision can be carried out and they're helping you do it, that helps a lot. It seems like your leadership has clearly done that. One of the more outstanding aspects of the report uh, that we just did, uh, Common Sense Institute did, shows that manufacturing job growth has been increasing at an average annual rate of 3.6% since 2017. To put this in perspective, the job growth rate for manufacturing over the previous six years was just 1.5%, more than double. Overall, Arizona has been an annual job growth rate of 2.3% since 2017. In other higher growth in manufacturing during that same time. Much of this includes various uh, foundational reforms since 2011. The 2017 federal tax cuts and job growth, which you had mentioned, Steve. The state's 2019 conformity in the federal law. The recent adoption of a single rate income tax in Arizona. Instant depreciation, which you talked about, Steve, of new business investments and machinery and equipment for property tax purposes. There's policies, but one of them, too, that I was really taken back by was the uh, infrastructure that uh, would be paid for. 80 percent, I believe, of infrastructure would be paid for by uh, the state for manufacturing. Glenn, tell us, you know, what are all these? How did this all fit together? What kind of leadership? Talk to us about the public policy that that laid the groundwork for this, this expansion I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, thanks again for, for having me back, Earl. It's always a pleasure. And uh, uh, it's an even bigger pleasure to hear you highlight some of those policies because I was privileged to work as tax policy advisor under Governor Ducey, who Steve talked about at length, and recall the journey that was the implementation of many of those policies. And so we saw firsthand. Glenn, Glenn I, I have to interrupt you. I did it because uh, other, otherwise people would think you were bragging. So that's why I mentioned it. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate that. And uh, it is hard, frankly, to talk about without sounding like I'm bragging. So bear with me with that, that humble introduction. But 
But, you know, we really saw firsthand the impact of Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in particular. And it's rare to see an almost light switch effect. I'm an economist by training. I've done this for, for many years, both at the governor's office and now with the Common Sense Institute. And you don't see light switches very often. But night and day, you talked about it in your intro, but to reiterate, job growth in Arizona and even nationally basically doubled in the span of 12 months. And historically, Steve talked about the 50s. Well, that was pretty much the peak for manufacturing, depending on how you want to measure it in the United States. It's been slow, steady decline by various measures ever since, not for lack of effort. Many people have tried to change that trend for decades and no one succeeded. And then you had TCGA in 2017 and effective manufacturing job growth doubling. And uh, uh, not just an acceleration job growth, but you mentioned this as well, but it's worth repeating. The manufacturing sector, at least in Arizona today, is growing faster than the economy as a whole. So manufacturing has ceased shrinking as a share of our economic pie, if you will, and started getting bigger. It has been for about a decade. Fascinating stuff. Okay, hit, hit on some of the policies, if you would, please, because I think everybody listening, particularly in Arizona, they'll relate to it, but there'll be people listening to this podcast that are not from Arizona, and they'd like to get an insight of what specific policies, three or four, that you thought were instrumental in the last uh, I guess close to 20 years now, actually 15 years, uh, that Steve mentioned. I can easily name those. We highlight these in our report, but but they're good benchmark points. The first big change was 2011, the Arizona Jobs Bill that established, amongst other things, the Arizona Commerce Authority. You mentioned this, Earl, but in 2013, Arizona passed the Manufacturing Infrastructure Reimbursement Bill, which allows qualifying large projects. These are the Intels. These are the Taiwan Semiconductors to get their public infrastructure costs, things like uh, water, sewer, uh, gas, roads, things like that, reimbursed by uh, the state. That was 2013. You had- now Stop, stop. So what I just heard you say, but for all of us, and I don't mean to be, you know, uh, being too much emphasis, but I wanna make it clear. What I heard you say, focus was number one, that you, you said, hey, it's important. We wanna put focus on this. And number two, we put money behind it that would have a significant influence in helping people move to Arizona. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I think that's fair. But I, I don't want to overemphasize focus because I kind of alluded to this in the intro, but I think it's worth repeating. Lots of administrations, from the Reagan administration to the Obama administration at the national level, and lots of governors, not just in Arizona, but around the country, have been focused on manufacturing. But focus isn't enough, right? You need Focus and you need policy that's actually effective and works, if that makes sense. And that's what changed in the last 15 years. Go ahead. If you can list a couple of three other things. And Steve, please chime in because uh, you're you're right there making it happen. So go ahead, Glenn. And then Steve, if, if you have some more to add, please do. 2013, the infrastructure reimbursement. Then 2017, and this was that light switch policy change, at least nationally, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the federal level. 2019, you mentioned this, Earl, but Arizona then conforms to that and adopts a lot of those pro-growth policies in its own tax code. And then most recently, last year, Arizona adopted, made permanent and sped up its 2.5% flat tax and did the, an instant depreciation for business personal property investments. And this is wonky, but important, right? And a business makes a large investment under the tax code. They get the to write that off over time, often 10 plus years very long period of time, but they've spent the money on the investment today. Instant depreciation allows 
business taxpayers to take advantage of that expenditure when they actually make it instead of trickling it in over, over a decade or more than that. The economic literature shows is highly incentivizing for capital investment. So you sum those all up over the past decade or so, and that explains, I think, a lot of Arizona's renaissance. Steve, you mentioned the uh, the uh, depreciation. How you you're cautious and relatively conservative, and that that helped you make some decisions. Uh, can you explain that a little bit about the, what the immediate impact of that was, along with maybe some of the other policy policies we're talking about? For for probably the first 15 years of our existence, we did essentially small run and prototype uh, machining. Uh, we had very good relationships with our customers, but you kind of hit a you hit a plateau when you're doing that type of work. Growth is very hard because you're not doing production, you're not doing big runs. And uh, when and my partner and I had talked about it for a couple of years, like, oh man, we really need to get into this. We were doing well, um, not great, but we were doing well. When these tax cuts came came through, frankly, we talked to our accountant too and said, okay, so if we buy this equipment. Um, we can depreciate it, uh, you know, right away. He's like, absolutely. So then we talked to our customers and said, okay, we're thinking about making an investment. Um, if we make this investment, will we have an ability to look at production level work, uh, that you guys are currently, you know, utilizing other suppliers for? And they said, absolutely. You guys are a great supplier. Um, you know, we can't promise you anything, but you'll get a chance to look at this work. So to late 2017, we bought two high speed CNC mills and then we bought two more in spring and we bought two more in the fall and then 2020 oh uh and sorry so in 2018 we bought two more and in 2019 we bought two more because it just it, it built on itself um it was like oh wow was, we, we we were able to fill those machines up with production work um and then the same thing actually just recently happened we we've always leased a building um about a year and a half ago we actually bought our own building and part of it again had to do with what Glenn was was just referencing about depreciation because we're looking at this and saying, okay, we're in a growth mode. You know, we think we're actually going to we we think we hope we're going to be you know pretty profitable. And right now is a very advantageous time to buy a building if we can you know do some depreciation and and kind of mitigate some of those profits on the you know on the books. It's it's a win win. Uh, so that, yeah, those policies were extremely helpful. Well, in a recent uh, coffee and common sense session, uh, uh, you mentioned the number one challenge for manufacturers is to over, overcome uh, work uh, workforce uh, issues, you know, finding the workforce, finding qualified people. Uh, can you further describe uh, what you mean by this? And uh, also, uh, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I've got to give Glenn uh, a lot of credit for confusing me um, because, uh, uh, you, know, you know, workforce, you know, typically it's always, well, we need to have more training or we need to have more X or Y or A or B or C. And when we were talking about all of these factors, it's a, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a big swirl. Um, and, and the more Arizona continues to, you know, attract and expand manufacturing, the greater the urgency it's going to be to develop a workforce. They can strive and uh, they can staff and, and thrive in this industry. You know, otherwise it's going to be an impediment to growth because we won't have the workers to, to staff those jobs. But you know, when when we were talking about all these various things that are their issues, I, you know, I, I began to think that you know, workforce is kind of like a Rubik's cube. Um, you have to fix multiple sides in order to come up with the whole solution. There are solutions out there that entail you know, track tax credits for training. Uh, vocational education. You know, there's this massive sector apparently of young men that are not participating in the workforce. We could use immigration reform that allows more people who want to find a career and work hard, 
you know, to come into this country. We also frankly need more, you know, grade school and high school exposure to the industry. Uh, and I think we need to attack those fronts, uh, all those fronts, not just to staff jobs, but frankly, from a, you know, communities perspective, you know, so, so people that, that, you know, we live with can have, you know, vibrant, fulfilling jobs and careers. So to your second question, you know, how can, how can we improve? You know, unfortunately, immigration is beyond states control, but I really believe one of the keys when we talk about bringing people and getting interest, and maybe this has an effect on that group of young people that aren't working. Um, if we can catch people when they're younger, who have no idea of the career paths and the, and the financial rewards that a manufacturing career can hold, I think we'd make some big strides. Um, I don't quite know how to do that, but, but I, I think that holds a key. You know, I recently did a career day. I went to a, I went to a Catholic boys school here in town. And when I did the career day, there were four tables set up in the cafeteria for wealth management and banking. And I shared one table with an acquaintance of mine who runs a construction company. So the doors opened up at lunchtime and the four tables for wealth management and banking were rushed. Well, Dave and I looked on and he looked over at me, he goes, don't they know someone needs to create wealth before it can be managed? You know, they, they had no idea. Here at Pivot, you know, we've hired young people who were, you know, flipping pizzas, stringing tennis rackets, delivering Amazon packages. In each case, however, we ran across them, thought, okay, this, this you know, this, this young person, they've got, they've, there's a light on in there. They've got something. Um, and then we bring them in. They did a walk around the shop and saw the whirring machines, you know, metal being cut. Um, and they were hooked and, and they've all become fantastic, committed, well-paid employees. Uh, so anything we can do as an industry or the state can do to increase the visibility of opportunities at a younger age, I think would be tremendous. Lynn, I, I, I can't let you, since you totally confused Steve, I want you to uh, take a shot at uh, telling us from your perspective. What workforce changes and what does it mean for Arizona if we can accomplish certain two or three things that you'd like to see accomplished for the workforce? And what would that mean for Arizona and you know, maybe the nation overall? I, I regret confusing Steve, but I do love hearing him describe the workforce landscape from his perspective, because I think it hits on a key point, And it's the same point that was the problem in manufacturing in past decades, right? Which is... Everyone agrees workforce is a problem. Every politician, every three-letter agency, and everyone has a plan to deal with it, but it's scattershot, and there's really no evidence that any of this is working. So you've got maybe, I'm just going to make up numbers, maybe 100 different programs at the state, federal, and local level operating in Arizona today whose stated goals are are solving the workforce problems. And despite those 100 different programs all marching along, uh, workforce issues are getting worse over time, not better. So, so, uh, I think it's a problem. It needs to be fixed. And Steve alluded to, to a point that I made at our coffee and common sense. But if labor force participation rates amongst men in this country were the same rate today that they were in 1990, in Arizona alone, you'd have about 300,000 more workers. And so these are small changes, a couple of points in the participation rate that have been slowly lost over, you know, 25 or 30 years, that they add up to substantial numbers over time, 300,000 just in Arizona. For a little context on that, it's about three and a half million people in our workforce. So, so you could increase the total labor market by about 10% just by reversing those points. Now, how do you do it? I wish I had an answer for you, but I think, uh, I don't know how to do it, but what I do know is the approaches that policymakers have been taking over the past few decades don't appear to be working. That's a sobering point. Steve, uh, I'd like to have you and Glenn respond to this question. Uh, the Biden administration uh, has made a strong emphasis on with the recent CHIPS Act and, 
and with IRA, the, uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act before that, that strong manufacturing sector will make the country more self-reliant. I, I think we can all understand that and agree. But what do you see with regards to the current administration's laws that they passed and with this focus that the Biden administration on strong manufacturing has placed, uh, what do you think that means to the business community in Arizona and just uh, for the nation as a whole? You know, unfortunately, I can't quite speak to, you know, the laws that have been passed and exactly what it's going to do. Uh, I could, you know, speak to the uh, the intent. You know, I think we saw a pretty. You're not uh, personally, nasty. you're not personally experiencing <laughs> what these, what these recent uh, significant uh, pieces of legislation have uh, have tried to accomplish. And not, no, I mean, not yet. Cer- certainly not yet. Um, I mean, ideally, it's going to help the scenarios that we saw, you know, witness during the pandemic where, we discovered just, you know, how beholden we are to foreign countries and companies for raw materials, for electronics, you know, for computer chips, you know, where I have an example here is, so we buy raw materials, whether it's, you know, aluminum or steel or copper, uh, brass, whatever it is. Two years ago, we would get a quote for some raw material and our, our uh, suppliers would hold the, the quote for, you know, 30, 60, sometimes 90 days. Uh, a year ago, during the height of the shortages that we're, we were still seeing from the pandemic, they were holding quotes for 24 hours. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really tough to quote parts, you know, for, for a customer when you've only got a 24 hour quote on material. And actually it wasn't, and, and it was even worse if you were actually buying electronics. So that said, we're, we're always going to live in a global economy going forward. That's never going to change. Um, but hopefully the lesson learned is that we can't, you know, outsource everything or all of it anyways, um, to, to other countries. We need to keep some work in house for supply chain purposes as well as, as negotiating leverage. So, you know, maybe with these, the new fab at Intel, the new fab from Taiwan Semiconductor, you know, maybe if there's another global pandemic, you have to wait, you know, two or three months to get the ships that you're looking for, but not necessarily you know, 12 months, 12 or 14 months. Okay. So this, this independence that the administration is talking about, uh, you're, you're, you're agreeing with it and just saying, Hey, we've got it. Yeah. So it's something that will have some benefit. And you've just described that we'll still be impacted by this global globalization and uh, international events, but not nearly as badly as we were during the pandemic. Correct. Glenn, uh, give me, uh, if you would, give all of us, if you would, kind of your sense of uh, the Biden administration, what they're doing, and you're, you're a policy guy, kind of looking into the future. How do you see this evolving? Uh, at the risk of repeating myself, I just love, again, Steve's response, because compare and contrast how Steve described the impacts of the CHIPS Act, which is a massive federal expenditure, massive federal outlay, billions of dollars, to the impacts of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which at the time were also uh, a significant impact. But just compare and contrast that where he can't point to a direct benefit. And frankly, I think uh, and I don't claim to be an expert either, but, but from what I've seen of, of how this legislation was modeled, it's much more, it's, it's sort of a return to form. And that's unfortunate. It looks a lot like the manufacturing policies of prior decades where it's not broad based. It's not focused on, on general investment relief, tax relief, et cetera. Instead, it's focused on sort of narrowly targeted specific federal subsidies for specific federal beneficiaries. And you have to jump through the right federal hoops to unlock that money. And so that means for a firm like pivot manufacturing, they may not be at the CHIPS Act table. Maybe it'll be a Taiwan semiconductor or an Intel and not to belittle them. These are all 
great firms they've done and are doing great things for Arizona. But but the risk with this kind of policymaking is is you don't know what you don't know. And so that focus on doing specific things might get the feds what they want, but is it going to get the economy what it wants? I think that remains to be seen. But the advantage of more broad-based relief, more general relief um, and reform is we don't need to be good guessers. You know, I didn't know that Steve was going to go out and buy those machines in response to, to the incentives created by Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I doubt that Donald Trump or anyone in Congress knew that either, but he did because they provided that broad-based relief, if that makes sense. So that is why let's be too pessimistic. That is why I have some positive concern that the impacts of CHIPS Act may not be as great as the impacts of TCGA. In some ways, it looks to me like a going of backwards in policymaking. Interesting. I appreciate your candor. Uh, Steve, uh, I must admit, in our shop, we're spending an awful lot of time talking about chat GPT and AI and how it is going to be a, a part of our company. And and uh, you're right there. Uh, tell us how you feel that it might impact uh, pivot manufacturing. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I first started hearing that, I thought, well, you know, we're a machine shop. What the, what the heck do we have to worry about? Then after thinking about it and then having my 27-year-old son tell me about it, you know, I would imagine it's going to be similar to some of the changes we've seen with robots and cobots the last decade or two in manufacturing, where many of the mundane repetitive tasks have been assumed by cobots. I, I can see AI doing programming. You know, we have a programmer that we, we have a couple programmers that we, that we utilize. I could easily see that transforming over the next couple of years where they get phased out. And AI does the program, optimizes the tool pass and picks the raw material. And we just have to, you know, then plug it into the machine and, and off it goes. Now, the downside is I, I already had one large aerospace company who we don't work for tell me that they were working on a project with AI where they're utilizing it to decide, uh, what the price will be that their, that their supplier should be charging them. And that they are now going to, well, not now, but at some point, they're going to present that price to their supplier and all the supplier can say is yes or no. Now that may be a little bit, you know, draconian, but the truth probably isn't too far from that, which gets a little big brotherish, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there's good and bad. I'm hoping for the good. Well, I, I agree with you. I hope for the good too. I, I, uh, I know I was talking to some people here. I said, you know, we, an awful lot of what we do is ask questions. And then say, okay, in light of the information we got back, what decisions do we make? And uh, we were we realized all of a sudden that, you know, probably the most important thing we can do is learn how to ask correct questions so that we can then get the information. But I guess one of the problems too, Steve, as, uh, and Glenn, you can probably speak to this, is that we found out that not all the information you get is correct. So you, you get you get the information and then you have to double check to make certain that it's correct. But gentlemen, I I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And I, I hope everybody who listened uh, has a chance to share what your experiences are and the direction Arizona is taking. And I think the innovative environment uh, and Steve, you certainly reflected that and Glenn, your candor with regards to how public policy impacted it. Uh, I think we're all getting a message and Steve, you're absolutely the example of how that message is working out. So thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Arizona, please visit commonsenseinstituteaz.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.